Um, I've been teaching First Timothy uh, once a month, so you may not have noticed, but I basically replaced what I was doing with the Psalms with First Timothy. We were looking at the Psalms once a month, but um, it just seemed good to shift that to First Timothy for a while. Um, so we may do some more Psalms once a month before looking at Second Timothy or Titus. Uh, but this epistle, we've talked about in the past how this epistle is not just something written to somebody who is an evangelist, but this epistle is really meant to be given to churches, uh, to understand really their direction and how to, as the, I think, bigger heading there implies, how do we grow as God's household? So in chapter 3, kind of in the center of the, the letter, you know, Paul tells Timothy that in case he's delayed, he writes so that one may know how to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. And so we are given in 1 Timothy a great sense of clear direction in our faith. And uh, chapter 6 ends, starting in verse 3, all on the same focus. We're not going to be finishing the whole chapter this morning. Um, So it's going to talk about um, how to handle wealth and the desire for wealth and how to handle good doctrine in relation to that in a way that's really connected And the verses we're not going to look at this morning is 11 through the end of the chapter, and he finishes talking about the same thing. He's thinking about teaching through the whole section, but I think there's some principles that would be good for us to really just um, slow down with this morning in verses 3 through 10. Um, So we're going to start there, and um, let's start reading verses uh, 3 through 5. Verses 3 through 5. If anyone advocates a different doctrine does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain." So stop there. Um, The first point we're going to look at is just trying to understand the nature of godliness based on the warnings that are given here uh, in the beginning of chapter 6. The definition of sound uh, in in scripture, there's really only a few passages that use this word in its original form, and it's translated in a couple of different contexts. Um, Outside of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, sound always refers to somebody being in good health. So in 3 John, John is praying that the person he's um, writing to would be in good health, as his uh, faith also is in good health. Um, In the Gospel of Luke, it's referred to with people that Jesus healed, that they were healed into sound health or good health. So sound teaching really is that which is whole and which is healthy. And that's in contrast to the condition of those who disagree with sound words and sound teaching. Um, You notice that before I get into some of these points here on the board, Paul really doesn't seem to ever have anything good to say about false teachers. You know, there's not like some bad things about them, but then so many other good things about them that it's kind of ambiguous what their condition is. No, it's it's always like a very clear diagnosis of a really serious and catastrophic spiritual condition. We'll think more about that in a minute. But sound teaching is that which is whole and healthy, Remember chapter 1, verse 5. If there's a verse to get burned into your brain from 1 Timothy or really from the Bible, 1 Timothy 1, verse 5 is like one of the verses to memorize. 
Um, That's where Paul writes, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Um, The principle of this that I want to tackle first, godliness and sound teaching, one of the primary things that comes out of that is humility and a purity of heart. And that humility and purity of heart that come from godliness just kind of by nature expose the nature of false teaching more deeply than what appears to be on the surface of it. Um, It's kind of like if a doctor is studying a certain field of medicine, a certain field of medicine that maybe relates to a very certain kind of health problem that's very common, they'll be able to see more clearly what somebody's condition is when they come to him for help than somebody who's not as educated in that field, right? And there's even doctors who may have like a surface knowledge of certain things, but they may, if somebody comes to them with what appears to be a condition they're not very familiar with, they may recognize symptoms, but they just don't have the knowledge base though to really diagnose or treat the real problem. And so they'll refer you to a specialist who has a little bit more education and capacity with that field. And the reason I say all that is that's like this humility and purity that come from godliness, that come from a sincere faith, a good conscience, and a pure heart. God in his word is the examiner of hearts. And if we're using God's word correctly, if we're growing in godliness in the right way, we should be becoming more and more better students of our own hearts. We should be more familiar with the nature and the condition of the heart so that we're able to see matters of the heart with more genuineness, more seriousness, more clarity. And again, this humility that comes from godliness is at the center of that. So I want to deal with why do these people who disagree with sound words and with the teaching of godliness, the teaching that leads to godliness or is according to godliness, why do they disagree? The reason I focus on the humility within godliness is you notice in verse 4, What's the first way he describes the condition of these false teachers? You may even just think about them as contentious brethren or false brethren. Um, it doesn't seem like it's inherently demanded that they're necessarily false, false teachers, but they're simply advocating for and disagreeing with things according to sound doctrine. So they're conceited. Um, this word conceited, you know, again, like the, just the definition of the original word um, in the Greek It's the idea of raising up smoke or like to wrap in smoke. Um, To raise up smoke is the idea of like, you know, making something appear as what it's actually not. Wrapping in a mist is the idea of it's like veiling something's true nature. I don't know if you've heard the term like to blow smoke, Um, but to blow smoke is the idea of exaggerating or like um, intimidating to hide something that's true Uh, beneath the surface of something or to veil it with words that might sound good but underneath is actually something else deceptively. Um, And I want you to just think about this in contrast to Ephesians 4. You don't need to turn there. Um, But just in my notes here, I have Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. It mentions these people who are conceited. They obsess over like controversial questions and disputes about words like envy and strife and contentions just constantly come out of the way they handle these discussions. And Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, just listen to how different this sounds. So here Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Does that sound at all similar to how these false teachers are described here? It's like a complete opposite. Um, And so because it's so opposite, I think it's important we understand the nature of this so we can understand it better. In verses 4 and 5, just notice the symptoms compared to what the cancer, like the root of the problem really is. So in verse 4, he's conceited and understands nothing. But I think the symptoms here are the morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words which arise, envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions, constant friction among men, deprived of mind and deprived of truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So the core of the problem, I think, is their conceit in the beginning, and at the end in verse 5, their thought that godliness is actually a means of worldly gain, and the symptoms point to this deeper problem. This is actually a pattern. Um, Look back at verses uh, 6 and 7 of chapter 1. Turn back to chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. I'm just going to kind of breeze through some of these uh, verses and just show the consistency here. So, the goal of our instruction is love from this good conscience, pure heart, sincere faith. And in verse 6 it says that there are some men who have strayed from those things and they've turned aside to fruitless discussions and they want to be teachers of the law even though they don't understand what they're making these confident assertions about. So you have these people who on the surface are making these very confident assertions about the law of God. And it seems like he's referring to the Old Testament law. But what's the real problem? First, they've strayed from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. But then he follows that up in verses 8 through the end of the chapter that the law was actually meant to humble somebody by convicting them of their sin, which they are not comprehending in the way that they're handling the law. So there's a deeper problem of being unaware of their unworthiness of God's grace and seeing the magnitude of his grace because of that. And so their hearts and their consciences are defiled. Look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1, same idea. So he's urging Timothy to keep faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So again, you have this surface problem. I think it's at the end of verse 20 that there's something they were saying that was this blaspheming that Paul was trying to um, bring to light here. But in the beginning of chapter 19, the true core problem is they've rejected faith and a good conscience. Again, symptoms of actually a deeper problem. Uh, Look at chapter 4. Verses 1 through 5 again. Really, it's just verses 1 through 3. So you have the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate advocate abstaining from foods which God created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So again, just think about this. What are the symptoms here? You have these people who are paying attention to deceitful spirits and false teaching, but here they're advocating abstaining from things that God has given to be gratefully accepted, so food and marriage. But is that like, is that actually the core of the problem? Look back at verse 2. 
So he diagnoses the problem, really it's much deeper than just what they're teaching. Their conscience is seared, and it's hypocritical lying. And their conscience is seared like with a branding iron. And so because of that, they teach and advocate false doctrine, right? So I want to suggest this as a principle. Um, Before this principle, actually, this is one I I don't have on the board. Um, Elders, shepherds of a church. I think especially we see this in Titus chapter 1 where it mentions that a shepherd is one who should be able to handle God's word and sound doctrine to be able to both exhort and uh, contradict those who are teaching false doctrine. That an elder should be somebody who is, because of the purity of their heart, because of the humility that comes from godly living, because of a, a training in righteousness and godly understanding, just having a consciousness of, of God's nature and God's form, is able to see through false teaching to address it as it really is. How often have you seen somebody or heard of somebody who you know teaches false doctrine? Think about somebody teaching false doctrine about salvation, one of the most clear and fundamental teachings in the New Testament. But oftentimes those same people who are leading people to hell by their teaching are seen in like a flattering way. Like, you know, I know that they are getting this wrong, but, you know, so many other things they're teaching that are so helpful. So listen, sound doctrine is that which is whole and healthy. If I have lung cancer, like stage three lung cancer, but I, I mean, I eat well, I have a good diet, you know, I look like I'm a healthy weight, you know, maybe I even do physical activity to keep my body in good shape. Maybe I'm really flexible and do yoga. Does any of that nullify the fact that my lung cancer is going to kill my entire body? Pretty much nullifies anything else healthy about my body. And if I'm going to have any hope of being healed, I've pretty much got to lose my hope that any of this other health is going to somehow fix my lung cancer unless I get radical immediate attention given to that problem, right? So I think that's what we see as a, as a pattern in First and Second Timothy and Titus. Doctrine and good teaching is understood through the humility of somebody who has the right heart, the right conscience, the right faith. Second principle that I do have on the board, um, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask hard questions. So like, just in thinking about this this week, I was thinking about how important it is to balance all of this. Because this could, I think, to somebody come off like, oh, am I not supposed to ask difficult questions? Like, if somebody ends up, you know, having trouble with a question I have that's maybe out of the norm, like, am I doing something bad? It is good to ask questions about everything. Anything we practice is on the table to be questioned. Anything in the Bible is on the table to be questioned. It's not wrong to raise questions. It's not wrong to ask difficult questions, right? And we ought to be patient with those things. But here's where I think we're getting into Paul's territory with the warning. When we're trying to be patient with somebody's questions, when we're trying to be very gentle in our response and maintain the integrity of Christ's character, as things are dealt with patiently, it will become very, very apparent. It'll be clear where someone's motives really are and the questions that they're asking, right? And I just want to bring up couple things that I've seen that I think point to some of these problems. Just me personally, I've seen a consistency with people who do things like this of how they use the word we. Some people, when they use the word we, 
they genuinely are including themselves in the we in a humble way. Some people, when they say we, are saying everybody is an ignorant drone except me. I've got the answers. Like people who say things like, you know, we just don't seem to get it, do we? You know, we think we've restored Christianity. Where did we get that idea? We don't seem to be willing to ask the hard questions. What that person means is, I'm the only enlightened one, and you can't really trust everybody else because they're just a bunch of traditionalists who are scared of asking the hard questions, right? I've seen that a lot with brethren who fall away. And then they write books and release content about just, you know, the importance of their enlightenment, you know, and the whole system needs to come down because they all of a sudden have all the answers. And I see consistently they use we to draw people in and to turn them against everybody else and to corrupt their view of good brethren who are trying to do the right thing, right? So I think it's dangerous when you're dealing with somebody who, in order to make their point, they've got to turn and corrupt your view of brethren who, again, are really trying to do the right thing. We don't assume our brethren are ignorant traditionalists. We assume our brethren are trying to do the right thing, right? And I think another thing, the second thing, is when somebody always seems to thrive off of controversy, right? It's, again, it's not wrong to ask a question that might be really hard or to talk about a doctrine that we may maybe just don't talk about very much. We can, we can deal with that. But when it's clear that somebody is just consistently thriving off of controversy and they want to bring things up just to start trouble and to stir up emotions, okay, now we've got a problem, right? Timothy was told in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when, when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, right? So I've seen brethren who bring up difficult things just because they want to stir up controversy, get quickly offended, paint themselves as the victim, and then all of a sudden now they begin separating themselves from the brethren and dividing churches because they're not patient when wronged, right? And the key thing, again, is humility and purity and godliness are such a key factor to understanding sound doctrine and being satisfied with the answers that the Bible gives clearly. Somebody who's conceited will never be satisfied because the form of sound doctrine is not just like mathematics, 2 plus 2 equals 4, there is a quality of character within truth that we have to humble ourselves to unite ourselves with, humility and purity of heart. So in verse 5, he warns that the second thing is that they believe that godliness is a means of worldly gain. With this, I want to read verses 6 through 10. In pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the... I'm sorry, I'm reading chapter 4. Uh, I'm surprised it took that long. Uh, chapter 6, um, verses 6 through 10, I'm sorry. Um, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds or all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So the second point is greed and godliness. And 
before we look at consider uh, Jesus' warnings against the rich, I just want to think for a moment about the importance of where we see ourselves in relation to these warnings. Um, I knew a family when I was younger. Um, the head of the household was the CEO of his own company. Um, it seemed to me when I was younger he had like an unlimited quantity of wealth. It seems like, like everything they had was really nice and cutting edge. And surprisingly, this actually kind of frustrated me, he refused to believe that he was rich. And like to me, it's like his home was huge. He had nice cars. He had nice things. And again, he was the CEO of a, of a successful company. So it's like, how can you not see yourself as a rich person? And I think over time, um, it's become just more and more clear that my problem, and I think this is a common problem, I'm always looking at the people who have more than me. And I'm always thinking that person who has more, that's riches, that's wealth. And really what I end up doing, actually, is I end up in that process justifying myself to use what I have in a way disconnected from these warnings because I'm not the rich person this is talking about. And I can oftentimes often have like a cartoonish, villainish idea of what is being said here, right? Like somebody who like rubs their hands together and has piles and piles of hoarded money that he's not using. Somebody who just like, you know, just is exaggerated from reality, right? So I want to consider Jesus's warnings. We're just going to blow through these. I just want to show you just this is a constant warning Jesus gave. Luke 6, 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Luke 12, 16, and 21, he tells a parable about the land of a rich man who was very productive. That rich man just stored up more and more for himself, and the problem of the story is not any immorality, just that he was very rich and very selfish. And God uh, calls his soul into account, and the implication is he loses his soul. So, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Luke 16, 14, Jesus was teaching about being good stewards of what we have and acknowledging that what we have is actually God's and it belongs to him. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he tells them from there that the things that are admired by men are an abomination in the sight of God. Luke 16, 19, same chapter, he begins to tell the parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And again, nothing wrong with the rich man morally. I'm sure he was a great guy, very pleasant to spend time with. But there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And if you know the account, he ends up in torment while the poor man Lazarus is comforted in Abraham's bosom. Uh, Luke 18, 24 and 25, after the rich young ruler comes to Jesus seeking eternal life, um, he turns away when Jesus tells him to sell everything that he has and to give it to the poor and follow him. Jesus, after he turns away, says how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So, to be superfluous, purposely, I want to consider James's warnings as well. James is Jesus' brother, and in his epistle, it's easy to overlook that James actually exhorts the same kinds of things. James 1.11, The sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. Uh, not toot, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. James 2, 6, and 7. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? James 5, 1 and 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. 
You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wants and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So here's the idea. God's not trying to like be frivolous or vain in these warnings, right? I think when we see the commonality of this warning, and there's more places than obviously that, that talk about wealth, I think it's not just that these warnings are for the rich, but these warnings are for everyone because we all, because we've sinned and our value system has been destroyed and corrupted by our sin, God knows that our desire for prosperity in a physical way is a serious and common problem. So the principle is I have to see myself, and I really mean me here, I have to see myself as the subject of these warnings in order to be led to godliness and contentment. I have to understand this warning is not for the villainous, exaggerated picture that I put into my mind. This is for me. Do you think that if you went to some impoverished places in the world where people were living off of rice and beans every day, one meal a day, do you think you'd feel pretty rich pretty quickly being in a culture like that, right? So I think like if we just put ourselves in different circumstances, it becomes pretty apparent that we are actually very rich. We have access to things people did not have access to even 50 years ago. We have an abundance around us, an ability to gain things that people did not have the ability to gain 100 years ago. And so with this, I just want to paint a picture of what it looks like to accept this. Turn to Psalm 73. This is a psalm that in every way is actually related to everything said in 1 Timothy 6, uh, verses um, 6 through 10. Psalm 73 is written by a man named Asaph, and it's a psalm of confession and repentance. Asaph wrote 10 psalms. He wrote Psalm 73 through 83. The thoughts that he writes are full of faith. They are full of godliness and purity of heart. This is a man of great faith who wrote this psalm. But I want you to notice something in verse 2. Notice something in verse 2. As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. This is a psalm where Asaph admits he actually was very close to falling away from his faith in God. Like he had almost completely lost touch with his love for God. And in verse 3, he expresses very clearly why. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I think when we're thinking about the love of money, a way to make it more personal is not just having a lot of paper money, you know, like just hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars stored up in my savings account or a lot of money just on hand that at any point I could just spend as much as I wanted to. I want you to just notice the way that Asaph describes the people he was envious of. And I think it helps us to understand the love of money is a love for what money seems to gain us, the possessions, the ease, the comfort. Verse 4, there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. So it just seems like they have just an easier life. Problems that normal people face, it just seems like they're totally free from it. Verse 7, it seems like their eyes just bulge from fatness. When he says the imaginations of their heart run riot, it's like they seem to have total liberty to pursue anything they want or get anything they want. Verse 8 and 9, they speak as if there's no account for anything that they're doing. And so 
In verse 12, I think here's the big thing. He says, behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. So let me ask you this. Do you want an easy, comfortable life? Do you want an easy, comfortable life? And if you had an opportunity where somebody was willing to give you like a couple million dollars, what would you do with it? What would you do if a couple million dollars was offered to you, just given to you, right? You know, better than thinking what would you do with it, based on the warnings of Scripture, would you even want it? You know, Jesus talked about how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, if we understand the dangers involved in physical prosperity, is that something we should even want to play with or have? So 13 and 14, here's the conclusion he came to. Remember we talked about godliness is a pure heart. It's, it's a genuineness of heart and humility. He says, surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure, washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. So he's saying, serving God is making my life miserable. You know, I look at these guys who seem to get away with having just great ease and luxury and abundance, and here I am trying to serve God and keep myself pure, and it's literally like I'm being whipped every single day in the process of keeping myself pure. So in verse 16, he pondered this. He thought about it. And in verse 16 through 28, he remembers God's judgments and repents. He remembers in verse 19 how God will hold them accountable. Everything they have is fake, like a dream in verse 20. It's like, you know, God's just going to wake up one day in a sense and their form is going to be completely despised. Verse 21, he admits that his heart was becoming embittered and pierced, just like 1 Timothy 6, that those who desire wealth pierce themselves with many unnecessary griefs. But he acknowledges in verse 23 through the end that God is his sole desire. In verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on the earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So this psalmist saw the great gain of godliness here at the end of it all. He saw the great gain of godliness. And I just love how like grisly and visceral his confession was. You know, he just throws it all out there that he admits I, I was on the brink of falling away. I legitimately envied the prosperity of the wicked I, I admit that I felt like I was washing my hands for absolutely no reason and just wasting my time. But then that leads him to reflect on things in a very good way. So I think the first thing of how we see the gain of godliness to become content, we've got to understand the danger of prosperity and just the multitude of troubles that find their origin from the love of the things that Asaph here was writing that the wicked achieve. When you understand you're handling something very dangerous. What do you do with it, right? Have you ever been in a situation like that? Um, I was with Buddy earlier this week, and he was telling a story about this electrical facility that he was at, that um, there was somebody who had to do work inside a gated area, and when, when they came out and closed the gate, the, the electricity just surged, and the sound and the power of it was overwhelming, right? And what Buddy said is after that, he never treated that the same way again told them, like, don't ever go in there. And when they went in there, it was all business. You know, he always accompanied the person going in. The thing is, if we understand the danger 
and we heed the warning, we will treat what we have differently. We will handle it differently. We're going to think differently about the prosperity of others. We're going to think differently about our own prosperity, right? So I think that really is the first thing. It's an application of understanding in our minds. What do you think about living a life of ease? What do you think about physical prosperity, right? Do you understand the danger involved in that? And do you believe that there may be just a multitude of sorrows and distresses and difficulties in your life that may, on the surface, appear to be from one thing, but more deeply actually have their source from a love of money, right? Um, Second point of how we see the gain of godliness I think we need to understand that godliness actually calls us to a life of sacrifice and suffering. Um, I know that might not sound very pleasant, but did you know we've already sung about that this morning? And that I so often protect my comfort, and I I really mean that, I've noticed that this week even, that I, I protect my comfort desperately, but then I'll come to an assembly and I'll sing songs about how I want to cling to the cross and Jesus gave everything for me and now I give everything back to him and willingly I, I sacrifice for his sake. And, th- and there's just this, this disconnect between these beautiful lyrics and what I'm actually doing and what I'm actually thinking. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. I just want to read a section about Paul's attitude um, toward these things. So in Philippians chapter 4, Um, Paul actually mentions that he's learned to be content in chapter 4, verse 11, in every situation. Because the idea is, like, being rich is not inherently evil. Like, Paul even mentions in chapter 4 that he learned to appropriately handle abundance. Chapter 6 will give instruction to the rich. So the idea isn't that we should feel guilty for having things or even having abundance. Thank God for what we have. It's just the attitude and the use and not setting our heart upon or into these things, right? So Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 16, and just think about this idea of Paul acknowledging that the gospel is calling him into a life of suffering, but because he's taking hold of that which is true life. Verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and notice this particularly, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead not that I've already obtained or already have or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the upward, upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However... Let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. If we are like Asaph and have really thought about these things, Asaph came to the conclusion repentantly that God alone is his source of good. And it's like he emphasized the suffering of godliness in the beginning of the psalm when he was embittered. You know, that 
keeping his heart pure was like being tortured, <laughs> like every day suffering torture. But then at the end of the psalm, he didn't bring up his suffering anymore because that momentary light affliction he saw was producing for him a far more exceeding weight of glory as he looked not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. And you see that here with Paul, right? He's, he's saying like, look, I see that the call of Christ is ahead of me. I see that the call is a heavenly calling to be conformed to Christ. And because of the exceeding value in verse 8 of knowing Christ, I'm willing to suffer the loss of everything and count them but rubbish. And the idea of counting is a purposeful counted calculation. It's like bringing out your calculator and putting the numbers together, right? That just like Asaph, Paul's he's thought about this. He's considered, okay, so Jesus' resurrection and his suffering on the cross, what does that say about my life as I'm living it in the world right now? What does that say about what's worth me investing all of my heart into? And here he says, the only thing worth that kind of investment is Christ himself, even having fellowship with his sufferings. Paul would tell Timothy, in 2 Timothy uh, multiple times, but just a couple examples. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, it seems like Timothy was pulling back from this kind of attitude. And Paul says, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And in chapter 3 verse 12, he says, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. What if Jesus told you the things at the time you were converted, that he told his disciples? What if Jesus himself promised you, if you're going to commit to this, you will suffer for the rest of your life. You're not going to have economic certainty anymore. You might be a poor person begging on the side of the street for the rest of your life. You might not be able to understand how you're going to provide for your family. What if he said you're going to be ostracized and isolated from the people who once were your friends? What if he said that you were going to have bodily suffering and difficulties for the rest of your life? What if he said you were going to be imprisoned and taken to jail and not even known if you were ever going to be released ever again to see the people you love? Would it still be worth it to serve God? Would it still be worth it? And would you still be diligent and passionate about your service to God, right? So, you imagine Paul in the book of Acts and preaching the gospel is stoned seemingly to death. He gets up when they examine his body, goes right back into the city. I'm sure there's dried blood and bruises and welts on his body. He finds the disciples and he tells them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Brethren, that's real. That's the gospel. And if we forget that the gospel is calling us to a life of sacrifice and suffering, we have forgotten the gospel. Last point. This will be brief because this will be in the rest of 1 Timothy 6. It's unavoidable. If we think we can escape changing how we use what we possess, we can't. The latter part of 2 Timothy is going to be a lot of application of these principles. And just to point you in that direction, if you'll turn back to 1 Timothy 6, if you've turned away, you'll notice in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verse 17, there's instructions to those who are rich, to share what they have, um, to be rich in good works in verse 18, to not fix their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. So we're just going to brainstorm next month about how can we do this in just in the capacity we have, you know? How can we try to personalize this and actually apply it? So we're going to try to 
understand how we can actually like do these things and be generous with what we have in a way that helps us to know that there is a way that we can actually do what God has said in this regard. But the first thing we have to do is just come to terms with the fact that it is a blessing. It's more blessed to give than receive. To know that I've got to change the use of what I have should not be surprising or shocking. We need to crave growing in godliness at whatever the cost. And if we can have that attitude, we can grow in godliness in just incredible ways that will help us to grow in our relationships together and our love for God and in our faith. So if you're here this morning and you have not accepted the call of the gospel, it is a life of suffering. That is the reality. But what God has promised is as anyone sacrifices for anything worth valuing, as anyone sacrifices for any relationship worth having, God will so overwhelmingly keep his promises, it will absolutely eclipse what is lost in order to gain the glory of Christ. And so if you've considered those things or have any requests at all to make before the saints, come forward while we stand and sing your invitation song.